Our brother, uh, uh, John Ramirez, he's been singing and writing songs for many years, and uh, yeah, I know you're going to love him, and so why don't you come on up, Johnny. And... So um, I had had a habit now more than a year where every morning, Monday through Friday, I'm at the gym, and I, I do a treadmill for an hour every morning. So I was very proud of myself, and uh, this this time, this three Thursdays ago, or yeah, I think the three Thursdays ago, I was on the treadmill, and and like I said, I usually go for an hour, and I started uh, feeling weird, almost like uh, you know, like I was going to get uh, heartburn, and uh, but it wasn't like heartburn. It was it was just a strange sensation, and I'm on there, and I look at my speed. I'm not even going that fast, you know. I'm I'm just kind of walking briskly, you know, and I'm like, man, and I did this, you know, and and you know, when you're a man, and then when you're a Mexican man, then you you know you're not supposed to stop, you know, you you just suck it up, you know. So I kept going. Got over half an hour, and I started all of a sudden feeling like uh, I was out of breath. And, you know, my, my mind, dude, you're not even walking fast, you know. So I finally, it got to the point to where I just stopped the machine, got off, walked out of the gym, went, went to my, my vehicle, opened the door, and I still can't catch my breath. And, and, you know, maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but you know how you have those thoughts, in the back of your mind that you don't even want to say because if you say it, then it's real, you know? And so I remember that uh, I had this thought that went through my mind that said, uh, man, could this be a heart attack? I didn't say the words, you know? And I'm kind of leaning with the door open, leaning on the seat. And I remember just saying, Lord, my life is in your hands. If I could change this right now, you know I would, but I can't. So, have mercy on me. And then, you know, I did what any good Mexican man would do. I got in my vehicle and drove. <laughs> so I drove 15 minutes back to the house, got to the house, and uh, this was early morning. I got to the house. My wife now had, uh, was awake, and she was about to prepare breakfast and all of that, and and I tell her what had happened to me. By the time I got home, I felt back to normal, like, like no big deal. It just so happens that I had an appointment that same day, later on that morning at 9, with my, with my regular doctor. And my wife goes, well, tell her, you know, tell, tell her and see what she, why that's happening. I said, okay. So I went, went through my checkup, and then I decided, oh, hey, doc, by the way. And, and I told her everything. I described what I just described to you. And she stayed quiet and she looked at me. She goes, you know, heartburn doesn't usually, usually leave you breathless. She goes, I, I think, I, well, let's run an EKG on you. I said, all right. So she came back and she said, I don't like what the, what the EKG is telling us. And I really think you need to go to the emergency room. Now, I had my, my little boy with me, my young boy here, and he kind of hangs out with me all the time. 
And I, and I looked at the doctor and I go, like, like, right now? She goes, yes. Would you like me to call an ambulance? And I'm like, no, I can drive. So I left her office, and my son and I, we drove. We're listening to the Christian radio, and there's some sort of a comedian, Christian comedian on, and, and he and I are both laughing. <laughs> Get to the emergency room. <laughs> Turn it off, go inside. I felt absolutely fine, right? So they ran an EKG, and they also said that they didn't like what was going on. They explained it to me. And you know how doctors are. They, they talk to you in, in, in tongues. And I remember she said, well, your enzymes are elevated. And I looked at her, okay, uh, what's an enzyme? And how high up is it? You know? uh, this lady was so merciful. And she looked at me, she goes, okay, let me explain it to you this way. She said, there are, there are every time we run an EKG, the heart sends out enzymes. She goes, there are 14 enzymes that usually get triggered whenever we run an EKG. When we see those 14, we call that normal. So we usually tell the patient, your heart's fine, go home. With you, there was 197 enzymes. Now, apparently, that's actually not so bad. I thought, wow, so I wonder what bad is. I think it's called death, right? And uh, so I'm looking at her, and she goes, are you experiencing chest pains? I go, no. Are, are you experiencing, you having trouble breathing? No. Uh, what do you feel? Nothing. And the whole time, I felt like I could just turn around and go home, you know. But they said, no, this is evidence that you, you did have a heart attack. And I'm like, Wow. So they kept me there, and, you know, they hooked me up to all the machines, uh, speakers, boards, guitars. They hooked everything up, you know. <laughs> and now I'm there in this, this hospital room, and, 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 and guys, I'm going to be stri- straight up honest with you. It's frightening. It's frightening. Because especially when you don't feel anything, and they come in with that look like you're dying, and you're like, aren't I supposed to feel like I'm dying? Because I don't feel, I feel fine, you know. I could have, I could have a sandwich right now. I'm fine, you know. And so um, they came in, they hooked me up, and they said, look, we're going to give you an angioplasty. And again, it was one of those, wow, uh, is that an Italian food? <laughs> you know, can I have extra sauce? What, what is that, you know? They explained that to me. They end up going through my vein. And, you know, I was hoping, you know, because I'm one of those uh, real Mexican macho guys. As long as I can't see it, I can't feel it. But if I see it, Lord God have mercy, I'll feel even what I shouldn't feel, you know. So I'm thinking, okay, they'll knock me out and I'll have a great nap, right? No, no, they don't do that. They leave you awake for the whole thing, right? So they're, they use my arm, and, and I'm turning the up. I don't want to see it. And, and then doctors have this weird thing. They say, you're going to feel some pressure. <laughs> I remember telling the doctor, that doesn't feel like pressure. It feels a lot like pain. It, it really reminds me of pain. And so they send up this thing, and what really, really 
hurt that made my arm feel like it was going to explode is when they put the dye inside, you know. And so they they took pictures of my heart and they were up there and the whole deal. And after a while they finished and they had explained and said, if it's something that we can fix, we'll just do it all one fell swoop and you should be good to go. But if not, we'll talk to you afterwards. So I came back, they brought me back to the room and I'm waiting with my wife thinking, man, I hope everything, maybe they fixed it. I don't know. They came back and the cardiologist had this really sad look on his face and he sat down on the bed and he looked at me and he goes, um, got some bad news. And I said, okay. And he says, all, all of your veins are calcificated or calcified. And again, it's one of those words. Uh, what does that mean to like me? They're clogged. Now, the only, the only, mind you again, if you have a car and all your fuel lines are clogged, the car don't work, right? So my mind says, so I'm dead? <laughs> but I still feel stuff, you know? And, and to me, it's like, how could all my veins be clogged and I'm still talking to you, you know? So long story short, they recommended an open heart surgery, right? And, and again, you know, I needed clarification. So I said, is that where they like cut you open and break your ribs? And, the, and he looked at me and he said, yeah. And for me, it was like, wow. When he left, I looked at my wife and I said, what am I going to do? It took me almost two years to recover when they put in a stent. I go, even now, I'm only at, I, I assume, about 80% of my ability to sing like I used to. I can't hit the high notes anymore. And I go, now they're literally going to crack open my chest. When will I be able to do what I do ever again? When I'm 70, you know? And so that was a huge concern to me. They ended up... Uh, uh, coming in a few times to tell me that my heart was skipping beats, you know, and I looked at him and I go, well, my wife is here, so it should be normal, you know. Uh, next thing I know, they, they were calling around to see what hospital could take me to do this procedure. And uh, long story short, Sunday morning, helicopter came, and they took me out in a helicopter and flew me to Seattle. And I was there at the uh, the... North uh, University of Washington, uh, University of Washington Medical Center. And uh, their plan was to give me the open heart surgery. And then uh, I was there from Sunday all the way to Thursday. Early Thursday morning, their team of surgeons got together, ended up coming to let me know that they decided not to do the open heart surgery, uh, that they felt that would be better option for me was to get stents. So they, that Thursday afternoon, they gave me a stent, and uh, everything went well. And they, Friday, they sent us home. So we came home, and, and, uh, and, and uh, when I saw that I lived, I thought, okay, then I guess we are going to Deer Park, and we'll be at the church, you know. <laughs> so the reason I'm here is because I'm actually still alive, guys, all right? <laughs> uh, and... 
You know, for me, what I do is not my career, uh, because if it was a career, that would really suck, you know, because it doesn't pay well at all, you know. Uh, this is not a career for me. This is my calling. This is what God has set up, you know, where it says that called according to his purpose. This is his purpose for me. So I can't quit. I can't stop. I can't change my mind. I can't retire. This is what I was designed to do. I'm a, it's, you know, I'm a nut that only fits a certain bolt, you know. And so uh, I'm, I'm here today, and, and I've been communicating with Pastor, and I told him, hey, I, I still want to come. And, and he texted back, and he said, well, if you're up to it. In my mind, I've said, I, I don't know. I think I am. I'm breathing, you know. So uh, he says, well, you know, and I go, do you remember what I spoke about? And he goes, no, I can't. He goes, but you know what? Go ahead and talk about worship. That would be good. I said, all right, I'll talk about worship. So I want to share with you today and, and ask you to pray for me. They, they are, I have an appointment to go back to Seattle for another stent. I don't know how many stents they're going to do. Uh, they're going to do another one August the 8th, I believe, 8th or 7th. Uh, so please continue to pray for me. Uh, it is my heart's desire to live to an old man to where I really bother my kids. Uh, to that age, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to that age when, when they're embarrassed. Yeah. I, I want to be able to say, I changed your diaper. Now it's your turn, you know. So I'm, I really... That's my goal, okay? That's, that's really my goal. Um, before I start, let me introduce my wife. This is my wife, Maria. And that's our youngest son, Jaden. And uh, I'm so thankful that my wife married me, you know. Uh, I look in the mirror now, and I'm extra thankful that my wife married me. And I always thank you, thank you, Jesus, thank you. I look at my face, and I say, man, a face only my wife could love. Thank you, Lord, you know. So I'm blessed, and, and she's been with me for 33 years now, uh, doing everything we do, right? Going through adventure after adventure. I also want to take the time to introduce my friends, the Hilkers. They're here visiting, and I haven't seen you guys for, like, what, 20 years? And, and Fred hasn't changed at all. He looks exactly the same, you know? So, uh, but uh, I want to thank the Lord for what he's doing even still in me. And I want to share some stuff with you. And, you know, today, in today's world, in today's church, uh, the Lord has blessed me. Uh, and I wish I would have thought of it. I could have showed you some pictures. Um, I've done concerts in tiny little rooms, tinier than this. In Scotland, I've been singing and worshiping in pubs, uh, which is the weirdest thing to be singing. And I stand, I stand in all of you. And they got a, a point. And then to see these people drinking beer and all of a sudden start weeping, you know, it's amazing. You know how, how limited we make God because of our preconceived notions? We're so dumb. <laughs> and, and it turns out I've done these things. I've been in, in, I think, 10 different countries now. Because of my ability to be able to communicate in two languages, that has helped so much. 
right? So I've been in, in uh, the Dominican Republic. I did three different concerts in three different cities. Uh, I think the smallest amount of people that went to one of the cities was 37,000. So I've done concerts in front of 50,000, 30,000, 20,000, 20, 15. And to me, I'm exactly the same. And, and my heart is to worship because, see, here's the thing is today what's happening, and, and, I, and I'm noticing it uh, more and more, when people say, let's worship, right? You come to church and they say, let's worship. What's going to happen? What do you, what, what's going to happen when they say, let's worship? Tell me. I don't know. Yeah. Come on. What, what are they going to do when they say, you come to church, service is going to start, and they say, come on, everybody, let's worship. You're going to sing, right? See, worship has become synonymous with music, right? So, worship used to mean reverent honor and homage paid to God. That's what that word literally means in the dictionary, right? So, but if you mention that word today to any churchgoer, it simply means singing or music, right? You listen to the radio. This radio, we play worship music, right? As a church, we've educated ourselves enough to say things like, well, worship is a lifestyle, not a musical style. Now, that's a common thing. People will tell you that. And we agree with that. We'll say, yeah, that's true. Amen. And it's like we understand the statement and completely agree with it, but we rarely embody it. Okay? If at all. See, what this, what, what's that scripture ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth? And what is it that sets you free? The truth, right? So we, we, we have a lot of things that, that I want to talk to you about. A lot of times our worship depends on the ability of these gentlemen and ladies that stand up here. That's why right now, for any, any growing church, any big church, one of the biggest demands is an excellent worship team and a great worship leader. They'll pay money for that. Many churches even today uh, pay money to have musicians come in and, and play. They're not members of the church. It's happening here in Spokane and Seattle, everywhere. You know, I, I know musicians personally that that's what they do. They gig. So on Fridays and Friday nights, Saturday nights, they're doing gigs in, in bars and clubs. And Sunday morning, they do a gig at a local church and they get paid to play. And, and the church, what they want, because they know people are attracted to good music. Right. So that that is what it's come down to for a lot of folks. Right. So, you know, if you if you follow that little that little uh, string there and you happen to be coming to this church and you happen to know this gentleman or this young woman that's up there singing and then you know that their life is like a mess. And you're like thinking, what are they doing? Already you're starting to get negative things connected. Right. Negative is connected to it because. The lifestyle doesn't match what they're singing. This is why over the years, have you guys heard how many worship leaders, songwriters, Christian songwriters that have now come out and said they no longer believe in Jesus? 
There's a lot of them doing that. For me, it's like, how's that possible? You wrote one of the songs that our church sings, that it's an amazing song. And now you're saying, I no longer believe in Jesus. And, and you're like, uh, I don't think you ever did, dude. You know, I can never say that. You know what? I may be upset. I may be angry. I may be hurt. I may be wounded. I may be in total rebellion. But there's no way I could ever say I no longer believe in Jesus. Right? And yet I know so many that are doing that even today. Right? And these are songs that you are still hearing on the radio today, songs that sing on the church today. And, and, you know, for me, if you examine the song, the song is wonderful. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with the song. Yet the author of that song used his gift to do something, but had no relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? So the moment that the church does what the church does is, you know, stabs you in the back, slaps you in the face. Because we're people. That does it. I'm out. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. You know. So let me let me point this out to you. I'm going to tell you a story that I'm sure you guys have all heard. You've heard the story of David and Goliath, right? So I want to bring that story to you, but I want to show you some stuff that's in there that we kind of skip. We don't realize many times. So let's concentrate on what the Holy Spirit has hidden within that text, if you will. And uh, let me see if I can use this this thing. Ah, there it is. So I'm calling it the transformative power of worship because here's the deal. Real worship transforms you. Okay? Real worship, the way you know it's real, is because you change. All right? So let me point out that this event happened shortly after the prophet Samuel anoints David to become the new king of Israel. All right? Let's go to 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 17. It says, Now Jesse said to his son, David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock. Let's see. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going, uh, as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Okay, let's see. Twenty-one. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David, uh, David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines, asked his brothers how they were. As he was taking, as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. Okay, this was something that was happening all the time. His usual defiance, and David heard it. Verse 24. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Okay, let's, you guys remember the story, right? I'm not saying something new to anybody. If you've never heard this story, it's cool. I'll explain it to you. It's really cool. One of my favorites, right? Uh, 
It says, now the Israelites had, had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. Okay. And he says, uh, he says, he will give him, he will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Right? It says, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. David says, now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Oh, sorry. There we go. Wrong button, guys. Sorry. Let's see. Go back here. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Right? David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. He has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Okay. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. 
Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was a little little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day. I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistines moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Oh, sorry. Verse 50 says, So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Now, we've all heard that story, right? It's one of the favorite ones. uh, If you grew up like me, going to church your entire life, whether you wanted to or not, you heard that story. You heard it in Sunday school. You heard it in kids' class. You heard it at church. You heard it preached. You heard it taught over and over and over. So, you know, I was one of those kids that grew up in church uh, with a preaching dad and a pastor dad and an evangelist father, a a mom that was a a worship leader and a singer and a songwriter. So uh, this has been my life my entire life, right? I'm 58 years old and my entire life has been in church, right? So I was incredibly familiar with this story. So... It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible, but I want to point out some tidbits that I've never seen, and I believe many people have never seen them either. Let's go to 1 Samuel, uh, there in 17, verse 28. Let's, Let's look at this again. It says, When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Right? Um, he says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You come down only to watch the battle. When I read that part and I looked at what was happening, I thought, what battle? Nobody was fighting. He'd come out, talk smack, and everybody would run and hide. You came down to see the battle. 
you know, for me, it would be like, okay, this is not WWE. Nobody's even in the ring. What's going on, you know? So uh, verse 29 says, now what have I done? Sounds like a little brother, right? What well, do now, man? You blame me for everything, right? Can't I even speak? Now, I want, in the King, in the King James Version, it says, is there not a cause, is what he said. David was affected by what was going on, and he spoke out about the real issue. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That was the real issue for David. He seemed to be able to recognize that this attack was against the Lord, right? While his brother only concentrated on his own insecurities, right? Accusing and demeaning David. Now, remember, David had been chosen out of all the brothers to be the next king. You know, there's a, a, in the book of Psalms, David writes, in, in sin was I conceived, right? Many, many, uh, Bible scholars and theologians believe that perhaps David literally was the son of, of, uh, uh sin. That his mother had gotten pregnant from someone else. And this is why one of the reasons that they believe that he was not invited when, when, when uh, uh, his father was, said, bring your sons, and only the seven came, not the eighth. That is one of the reasons they say they believe that that's what happened. David was an illegitimate son, so the father never considered him a real son. And you, if you go down and trace David's life, you see that, what was happening, Right? Now, so his brother is jealous. His brother was there when, out of all of them, this guy is the one that's chosen. The illegitimate son, the, the little one, the one that's not important, the one that's, that always takes care of the sheep. And he even points it out, where are those few sheep? It wasn't even a big herd. He wanted to make sure, you ain't nothing, man. You ain't nothing, Right? So many times the strongest opposition to God's call on our lives come from those we think should be our cheerleaders. Our own family. Okay? When I say our own family, I'm not just talking about mom and dad, uncles and aunts and cousins and brothers and sisters. I'm talking about our own family. Church. Okay? A lot of times the strongest opposition will come to your life will come from those who sit next to you in the pew. Okay, now notice what, what happens next. Let's see, 1 Samuel 17, verse 31 says, What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. Right? Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. 33, Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. Okay, so now another tidbit I want to give you. Too often, even those in charge will most likely point to your deficits. Anybody ever gone through that? Right? You feel this, you know, I feel like God wants me. And they'll say, well... You need to go to Bible school. And you're like, uh, you know what I mean? Your deficits come 
in your face, your lack of experience, your lack of training, they will point out why you can't win. All right? Now, let me give, put that in perspective for you. I don't read music. I have no idea. I play this guitar, and I've gotten a lot of accolades for being a guitar player, a lot of accolades for being a singer and a songwriter. But I didn't go to school. Never have. I remember the first time I was ever told I, I did a concert, and some young guy comes up to me after the concert. I'm still up on the stage, and he goes, Dude, bruh, do some awesome arpeggios, bruh. And I remember looking at him, I said, thanks, man. He turns around, walks away. I look at our guitar player and I go, bro, what's an arpeggio? And he goes, well, it's, it's you know, those, those notes that you run, you know. And I go, I do some awesome arpeggios, bro. I was doing a concert in South Texas at a worship conference. I was approached by a, a, a young man. And he says, Hey, brother, can I talk to you? And I go, sure. And he says, uh, we're starting uh, a school of music. It's called Cancion. Cancion is world-renowned school of music by a, a very, very well-known, probably the most well-known uh, Spanish-speaking Christian artist in the world named Marcos Witt. And, and he says, we'd love you to be our guitar instructor. And I smiled and I go, Man, I, uh, I'm really flattered, but uh, there's one little issue. And he said, what's that? And I go, I don't read music. He literally looked at me and he went, he smiled and he goes, uh-uh. <laughs> and I said, no, seriously, I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. And he goes, serious? And I go, yeah. But w- what I just saw you do, and I go, yeah, I don't know what I did. I go, I have no idea. My fingers move and it sounds good and that's all I know. And he's like, he's in total shock. And then in our conversation, I began to talk to him about worship, what I teach, what God has shown me. Three days later, he calls and he says, can you and your wife pray? We'd like to see if you'd be interested in becoming the, the ministerial director for the school. And I'm like, me? Every one of their teachers had degrees in music. And their director, the guy in charge of the whole shebang, had no idea what in the heck I'm doing, right? So how do you become a director of a music school when you can't read music, right? Those are my deficits. But to God, those aren't deficits, Do you see what I'm saying? So a lot of times, even our leaders, especially the leader that we see most often, you know, the one in the mirror, will point to your deficit, why you can't, why you're bound to fail. And you'll look at that leader and you'll respect that leader and believe that leader and walk away from what God is calling you to do. Right? What King Saul told David wasn't a lie. He didn't lie to him. You were only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. That was true. Those who don't know God will consider his will for us, nor will they most likely believe it. They will not consider his will, God's will for you. 
right? Many of us listen to that logic. We examine the odds. And before we know it, we've forgotten God's will for our lives. And I really want you to take a moment and think back. Because I feel by the Holy Spirit that there are many of you that God spoke to you a long time ago. Planted a seed of a vision of this desire and you've since forgotten it. And you've taken life as God's way of telling you, you know, that was yesterday. Now, I know I'm being kind of harsh, but it's okay because I'm only here today and then I go, right? And you'll have to deal with pastor about that stuff, you know. So, so I feel very comfortable in, in being harsh, right? A lot of us sit in church with a seed that was sown by the Holy Spirit, not by anybody's words, not by any, any influence, but by the Spirit of God, somehow got in there. And it's God whispering in your spirit, maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it was this crazy idea, this feeling, this sudden urge, and then you squashed it. Because you listened to the leader, or you listened to the leader in the mirror, And when you squashed it, life happened. And that became your reason of saying, well, it wasn't God's will. You know how many uh, women I've met that are literally anointed by God to sing and to lead worship, and then life happens? They get married, they have kids, and life happened. It wasn't God's will. I turned that in now, that desire that I had, it was just my desire. It really wasn't what God was calling me to do. Wake up. And here's the deal. Kids are no kids. 70, 60, no matter what your age, that doesn't change what God sowed in you. Nor does it limit what God can do through you. Stop making God human. Right? The reason I'm here today, even though everybody that knows what happened to me, their first question is, should you be doing that, bro? And I have to be honest with them. I tell them, I don't know. If I kick the bucket in front of people, at least they can help my wife drag my body out. You know, something, something positive can come of it. You know, she's really small. I'm really big. So, yeah. But for my heart, I know what I'm called to do. I know what God wants me to do. It's at, for me, the, the, the thing happens in how to do it. That's where I'm constantly, okay, God, how do I pull this off? Uh, what should I do here? I know what I'm supposed to do. It's the how at times that gets me stuck for a little bit. But as far as me doing it, I'm going to do it. I don't know how yet, but I will do it. Right? My plan, like I told you guys, is to come back and visit to you when it's all your kids here. And I'm some old fart up here telling them the same thing. Wake up. Right? Let's go to Jeremiah. and Look at, look at this verse. You, you know this verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. You know, you, you could say, well, yeah, but we shouldn't go off half-cocked and do something dumb. Right? Fear many times disguises itself as prudence. Yeah, that's right. 
So how can we tell which is which? Check your motive. David's reason for stepping into that impossible situation was his love and respect for God. The reason that a lot of us don't say anything when laws like this are passed. It's not. It's because we're reasoning things out. We even make excuses like, well, if God wants it to happen, he'll just take care of it. If the Lord wants me to have money, it will just fall on my face. (laughs) I will not go out and actually look for employment. No. Do you hear how dumb that sounds? Right? It says knock and it shall be open. It doesn't say wait and all of a sudden it'll open. It says knock. It says ask. It says seek. There's an action, right? So a lot of us, uh, we come from that impossible. So how do we know what we're supposed to do? Well, the motive. If it has to involve our God, our love, And respect for our God should generate the motive that we need to move. Let's go to 1 Samuel there in verse 34 now. And it says, says, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, And killed it, right? It says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go. And the Lord be with you. What a great leader that guy was, you know. Go for it, kid. Do it. Here, take some prizes. Probably be the last thing you wear. But go ahead. You know. Instead of giving in to pressure, David testified. You want to strengthen your faith? Testify. <coughs> You know how many people don't testify anymore? When I was a kid, we we were Pentecostals, right? Now, Pentecostals, we were crazy. We were nuts. We rolled in the aisles. We hung from chandeliers. We jumped pews. We we did the whole thing, you know. God is in the house. Boom, you know. I remember people falling. You know, I lost many a, a floor monitor to many a dancing lady who just happened to step into it at the time. You know, I remember all of those things. They used to call us, when I was a really little cool, they used to say, holy rollers. Right? You guys are familiar with that? The holy rollers. In, in, in Spanish, they would call us los aleluyas. Right? I literally would hear Spanish, Mexican people, illegal immigrants say, Oh, no, 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 los aleluyas, no. They'll, go, they'll make you crazy. And they would say that to each other. And if they start reading the, the, la Biblia, the Bible, it will make you crazy. Don't go over there. They were afraid to come to the church, right? But I saw things that were incredible. Because we were just dumb enough 
just dumb enough to believe that God could do anything. Right? So I, I was in Mexico one time with my dad. And my dad, like I told you, was a preacher. My mom was a singer. She would lead worship. I'd sing with her. Me and my two brothers would play. And, and people would come from all over this to see these little kids. Because I was 12 and my brothers were 11 and 10. And we were doing the worship service. Back in those days, you know, you had the Jackson 5 and, and all those little kids. So it was a big draw. And my daddy used to have these sayings. He goes, you're the bait and I'm the hook. He goes, your music brings them in, and the word of God hooks them, right? That was my dad's saying. So we would travel and go to these places, and we're in Mexico in this, in this church that was not even completed. The building was not completed. They had cement floors, a big cement platform. They had the block walls and the gaping open holes where there was supposed to be windows someday and no roof. Okay. And people brought in their own chairs. I remember one guy dragging a stump. And they sat down. It was just a small group, maybe about as many as are here. But the building was bigger, so it looked like nobody, right? But we're up there, and we're playing, and we're going for it. And Dad would preach as if he were, there were thousands. And the word of God says, you know. He was old school Pentecostal. He never learned how to whisper. My father was incapable of whispering. I remember me and my brothers, even as teenagers, coming up to him and say, Dad, Dad, come here. He'd go, what? He'd go, Dad, whisper. I am whispering. It's like, when he prayed in secret, we knew. We lived in a trailer house. He'd go into his closet. We'd be in the kitchen and hear every word he was seeing in secret to God. So that was my father. And I remember that day, uh, we're up there playing. Dad had just preached, and he made an invite. Is there anyone who needs healing? So immediately this line forms. And I notice there's this little boy, little kid. And, and he's down on, on this little square board with four wheels, little casters. And he had two wooden blocks with, with black electrical tape wrapped around him. And he would pull himself like this, right? And he's in the line. And I, I noticed, my brothers noticed, we're up on the stage so we can see everything clearly. Dad's praying for people in the name of Jesus. Someone bites it, you know. Another person bites it. And, and, and he keeps going down the line. And this little kid is getting closer and closer. When he finally makes it to the front of the line, <laughs> I remember how dumb me and my brothers were. Okay, and, and uh, you know, for any of the teenagers that are here, you know that we are all brain damaged at one point or another. And my dad had this habit of asking what I thought was really kind of a dumb question. Here's this little kid. He rolls up like this. And then dad goes, looks down at him and he goes, what would you like the Lord to do for you, son? I looked over at my brothers. Duh. What does he want a bike? You know, and, and, and we're up there like, cracking up, trying to keep it under, under our breath. <laughs> what a dumb question, Dad. Come on, you know. It's obvious, you know. And the little boy kind of surprised me, and his, his answer stayed real clear in my mind. He said, I want to run. That was his answer. Okay. I want to run. So at that moment, 
that kind of caught our attention. And dad looked around and he said, are the parents of this child here? Is, is, is there a, a parent? And, and this lady lifted her hand and this young girl lifted her hand. And he says, please come up here. Now, we assumed that the older woman was the mom. It turned out that the older woman was the grandmother. And that young girl was actually the mother. She had given birth to him when she was like 12. So he was born without bone in his leg. He had chips of bone. So what he would do is he literally would roll up his legs, his calves, and, and create like a little cushion and sit on them, cover himself with a little blanket, and roll around and beg in the streets during the day. That was what he did. That's how they survived, right? So dad's looking down at this little boy. We're up there, you know, and we're kind of playing soft music, you know, in the back. And uh, I exalt thee. And we're just playing the music. The presence of the Lord is there. And dad asked this lady point blank, Senora, do you believe that God can heal your son? And he puts the microphone. You know how evangelists are. They put the microphone in it, right? He put the microphone in her mouth and she answered boldly, no. Right? In that moment that she said no, the young girl, who we thought was the sister, pulled his hand with the microphone. She goes, I do. I believe for both of them. Like that. My dad smiled. My mama was standing next to him. Then he goes, okay. Mija, which means my daughter. They said, then so be it as your faith. And dad says, let's pray. I remind you, this is just a small group of people sitting on stumps, own their own chairs from their kitchens, whatever they could find to sit on. And everything there kind of echoes, it's splashy because it's nothing but cement, right? And dad, in his usual style, he grabs the little kid and pulls him up. In that moment, that little rag fell off and his legs unrolled. It was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen in my life. His legs just rolled out and they were hanging straight like, like rags. They had creases where there shouldn't be any on his shins. And I mean, we're like this now. Looking at this little kid, and my dad literally is looking at him and holding him up like this. Dad later said, he didn't weigh anything. He was as light as a feather. I believe he was seven. And so he's holding, and, and the little kid's legs are kind of like swinging around like, like rags. And we're all like that. You know, the people that were there, the small congregation, and I joke about it now, and I go, they practically sucked that poor kid out of my dad's hands. <gasps> You know, his little legs would fly out there, you know, and, 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 and he's holding him. And as he's holding him like this, you know, uh, my dad stayed quiet and he's just like looking and looking. Finally, after a great while, dad prayed. Later on that night, I hear my mom question my dad. Said, you hesitated to pray. I've never seen you do that before. Why did you hesitate? And my dad told her in his usual Mexican style, woman, you know what, woman? For the first time in my life, I doubted. And my mom goes, really? He goes, oh, yeah. 
when I saw his legs like that, he goes, man, I thought, man, God, how are you going to do this? And he says, and you know what the Lord told me? And my mom goes, what? The Lord said, who's going to do it, you or me? And I told the Lord, who you are, Lord. He goes, then shut up and pray. (laughs) So apparently that's the way God would talk to my dad. Shut up and pray. And he goes, and that's when I prayed. Right? So my dad prayed. And after we heard that story, as we were laying in our beds in that little, little hut that they gave us to sleep in, and I heard that, it made sense to me why dad hesitated. And it even made sense the way he prayed. Because like I told you, when he prayed, he prayed not just for the person, but for the, the rest of the block, because he was so loud. He's holding this little boy like this, and he goes, Father, so that all may know that you are God, and there is no other. That's what he yelled. I command healing into this boy now in the name of Jesus. And it echoed, right? Right? And we're all watching. And, and he's, holding, he's just holding him up, looking down at his legs. Little legs are doing this you know, as he moves. Then all of a sudden, I always forget to ask my, my brothers. Uh, I heard a sound. Back in the day, my dad used to make our own slingshots with that rubber tubing. And you, know, you put the, the, the stone in there, and as you stretch it, you hear that sound. I heard that. I heard that stretch. And we stayed looking, and the little kids, his legs were doing this, and suddenly they went like this. Right? That was the first... From the congregation. Then when they straightened out like this, his feet started coming up. <gasps> you know, and people started standing up, looking, right? And dad's still holding him. And his feet come up like this, and they're doing this when dad's holding him. They're like stiff. And we're like freaking out. Me and my brothers now, we quit playing. We're all up at the front, looking down from this tall stage. Mm-hmm. And we're watching this happen. In that moment, that little boy standing there, his legs are straight and his feet are, are up. Dad, let's go. And the kid falls on that little board, right? And when he falls, he's doing this. And the older woman reached out to like steady him. And my dad yelled, don't touch him. And she just like went back. And the little boy's doing this. And now the congregation, all of them are standing up. <gasps> you know? And suddenly this little boy just runs right down the middle aisle between all these makeshift chairs. He just ran. And as he ran, everyone that was there just, everybody fell out. Everyone in that building fell out. And he starts running in circles around that empty, you know, uh, uh, ceilingless and roofless building. And he's just running and running. And man, we're up there now, you know. First we were joking, duh, dad. Now we're like, (laughs) we're all up there weeping and crying. See, those were the things that I got to see. I grew up with that. And you know, smart people don't do that. Only dumb people there. So if you're dumb, you qualify. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? You have everything you need to do incredible things. Incredible things. If you're just dumb enough to believe God 
has called you to do something. Tell me the truth. Hasn't there been a time when maybe you're shopping, you're maybe at the mall or you're maybe at a grocery store and you see someone in a wheelchair or, or something and you get this, all of a sudden, this crazy thought like, man, wouldn't it be cool if I were to just pray for them to get off that? And you really think that's you? That's not you. You're the second thought. <laughs> crazy me. And walk off. Leave the poor schlep there. That's you. The first one, that was the God in you. Because he's saying to you, let me show you who I am. Let me show you what I can do. Don't be afraid. Because your fear is based only on your own self-interest. You're afraid because you don't want to be ashamed. You don't want to be embarrassed. But... I didn't come to harm you. I came to give you hope and a future. I love the way the King James says it. It says to give you an expected end. The end that you're expecting is what I want to give you. Your gift is not a surprise. It's that thing you've always desired deep in your heart because I planted that in you. And that's what I want to give you. That end that you've been expecting, that you've been hoping for, that you've been dreaming about for 20, 30, 40 years now. I want to give that to you. So instead of giving in to the pressure that we feel, testify. Testify. See, fear cannot exist in an atmosphere of faith. And faith comes by hearing So who do we testify to? Our opposition. Testify to your unbelief. When you're scared. When you're in the the hospital room by yourself. Tell God, you promised. You said. You said that I was going to go here. You said that you would call me. You said that I was going to do this. You said, Lord, I testify, I bring to you that I believe what you said. I'm scared. I called my kids and I talked to them and I gave them what were my last words. I was so scared. They kept saying, my wife kept saying, you're going to be all right. It's going to be okay. And I, I told them, you know, my brother, my little brother, his last text to me and my brother, Eddie, our middle brother. He was only 55 years old when he passed away. His last text, he was, we were group texting. He was texting Eddie and I, and Eddie and I were texting him back. And his very last text said, Yeah, guys, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go to KFC and get me a bucket of chicken and eat it all by myself. <laughs> that was his last words. Then there was no response. Then we, we got the call that, He was gone. So I told my wife, I want to believe with all my heart that I'm going to go into that room and come out okay. I said, but how do I know for sure? How do I know what God is going to do? So I talked to my kids and I told them, you know, my kids are adults now. I'm so blessed that I still have this one because he's a special needs boy. So he still thinks I'm awesome. (laughs) 
You, you guys know how it is, right? Your kids, when they're little, they think you hung the moon. You are Superman. You know, you're invulnerable. You're amazing. I still get that from that kid. And he's 17. Yes. What a way for God to show me, hey, it's okay. You still got it going on. You know, I look in the mirror and I say, Lord, have mercy. Am I really this old? You know, and then I look at my kid and yeah, I still got it. You know, my two older kids, you know, I think they were like seven when all of a sudden the magic disappeared. Right. Before I would like go out the door for like three minutes and come back in. Daddy. They come running and like you'd been missing for days, you know. Then after a while, it was like, hey, I'm home. Hello? People? You know? Oh, hey, Dad. What happened to the love, you know? And I still get that from this boy. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. So, you know, I look at that. And, and when you begin to apply that to what the Holy Spirit wants us to do in our worship, that's what makes worship real. So testify to your opposition. Testify to your unbelief. Testify. And your testimony is what the Lord has done in you. What he's promised you. Right? I want you to think. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Is what Revelation tells us. Right? So we're not done yet. You and I aren't finished. This isn't our going away party. I don't know how long I'll be hanging around, but, you know, uh, I've done my best life. You know, I'm on the other side of that. It's almost like we're saying, you know, so I ain't no good except to just try to hang on until I can't. Oh, man, don't sell yourself short because who lives in you is powerful. Age doesn't matter. Handicaps don't matter. Speak. Open your mouth and you watch what God can do. Prophesy over your kids. Prophesy over those kids that make their decisions because they're adults now and you are sitting right here and you're still fully in your mind and you say, man, my kids are stupid. And you realize they really are dumb. What are they thinking? Prophesy. When they come and they, they, you realize that they don't go to church anymore. They don't feel the need anymore. You prophesy. And keep bugging them. They can't do nothing anyway. Your mom, your dad. You know, you, they got to suck it up. Have you gone to church? Mom, well, go to church. You need church. You need to read your Bible. You need to, and you got to keep <laughs> saying what the truth is. Amen. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So if you get a chance, testify to your kids. Testify to your grandchildren. Tell them, you know what? Something happened to me when I was your age. And God did this. I have our one and only granddaughter. She doesn't go to church. She doesn't really know what church is about. But she loves grandpa. I mean, she thinks grandpa's the most amazing thing in the world. So you really think I'm just going to let that slide? 
No, man. I claim my little granddaughter for the glory of God in Jesus' name. I don't care what my son or his wife say. I don't care what my, my daughter and, and, and her life says. What I care about is that God said you and your whole family will be saved. So I claim that. And I've got that right. They can't do anything to shut me up either. You know? <laughs> the only thing that will shut me up is death. So I told the Lord when I was in the hospital, I said, Lord, the dead can't praise you. So I need to praise you. And if you let me kick the bucket, I won't be able to. There's still so many people that need to hear your praises. So I'm counting on you, Father. Bring me through, right? Now check this out. 1 Samuel 17, beginning 38, says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a combed armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic, the tunic and tried walking around. But because he was not used to it, or used to them, I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off, right? Verse 40 says, Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Okay. What I really want to point out is this. Don't be something you're not. Okay. When I was growing up, it was very difficult for me because I've always been a funny kid. I was a funny kid. I was a funny adult. I still am. I joke around a lot. In the churches where I began, because my dad was one of those kind of guys, too, that uh, just one day decided I'm supposed to preach. Sunday morning, the church is packed. He would always bring out his giant Schofield Bible and his notepad. And that's when he was going to preach. This Sunday, the church is so packed, my brothers and I, we'd be up here on the stage the whole time. And this was back before they invented these things to sit on. You know, uh, it was kind of sacrilege if you sat down. So we spent, and, and back in those days, guys, the services were like five, six hours long, right? And we'd be the whole time holding the guitar, standing up the whole time, just, you know, pivoting. <laughs> Trying to find a way not to fall down, right? And we're up there, and I'm holding, and, and Dad goes up there, and he puts his Bible down, and he puts his hands on the pulpit. And he doesn't say anything. And after a while, it became really uncomfortable. Even my brothers and I are looking at each other like, what's going on? The congregation's like starting to look around and, and dad doesn't say anything. He's just like looking at all the people. And they're getting nervous. We're getting nervous. Then suddenly dad, I, I, I see him. We're right behind him. He closes his Bible, closes his notebook. And he says, today I'm not going to preach. My son is going to bring the word of God. Johnny? And I'm like, I'm 12. And I'm like, this lump. He goes, preach the word of God. And he says, take off that thing. And, and I'm taking off the guitar, putting it down. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. I'm 12. And I remember, I just, he goes, speak the word of God. And he's standing right there. <laughs> The whole time while I'm in front of the pulpit looking at everybody feeling like, uh, 
That's all I remember of what I said. I said something. And it felt like I was up there for hours. Right? Dad later told me that it was probably five minutes. And then he said, because afterwards, mama was a mama. Right? She comes up and she goes, oh, my boy, you did so good. And she's hugging me. I'm so proud. And she's hugging me. And I'm like, eh, eh. I have no idea what happened. I don't know what I said. I can't remember. I'm still in shock, you know. And, and dad's standing there and she goes, Manuel, say something. And he looks at me and I look at him and he goes, Ah, you throw a pretty good salad. I looked at him and I go, salad? He goes, yeah, son. It's like you took everything you ever heard me say and just kind of just tossed it all in there. And he's doing this with his hands. Like a big salad. They need meat. They need meat, not salad. Give them the meat of the word of God. And then he turned around. That was, that was apparently his encouragement to me. And walked off. Right? That was my first experience preaching. My second and third experience happened just like that. So now I'd get up on there extremely nervous, like, please, God, not today, not today. Oh, thank you, Lord. Dad would preach. Time would go, and I thought, okay, it was a one-time situation, when all of a sudden, he'd stop. As soon as he stopped and didn't say any words, me and my brothers would look at each other like, no, no, no. My brothers were like thinking, not us, not us, you, you. Shut up, your turn, man. We're up on the stage being kids. I'm 12, 11, 10. It's your turn next. Well, how do you know? Then all of a sudden, my son's going to preach. And there I go again. No preparation, no forewarning, no prepare yourself, son, because nothing. It was suddenly all of a time. And that's how I began to preach. So don't be someone you're not. There's a major difference between learning and improving yourself and trying to be what you're not. Okay? So yes, I learned. But the Lord in his mercy didn't give me a chance to become or try to become somebody else. He kept pulling the thing out of me. There's no choice but to be yourself. Right? So I want to take into consideration that David was about 16 years old when all this stuff was happening. Right? I mean, really think about that. Consider it for a moment. Does that seem like a typical teenage boy behavior to you? I mean, think of what he did. He says, when a lion grabs a sheep, I chase after the lion. I grab it by its beard. I pull its mouth open and yank the sheep out of his mouth. And then I beat him to death. Right? Guys, when does that happen? How is that even possible? So I really want to encourage you to see that what God does goes beyond where we're at. What God can do goes beyond what God, uh, what we can do. Right? I I really want to make that. Now, David became, he changed. Something inside of David happened. And here's what I want to leave you with. You remember that in the story, David asked the question, What shall be done to the man who removes this? Right? Here's the crazy thing. If you read through the story, he asked the question twice. Now, I always assumed 
in my background that, you know, David was like really upset. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that challenges? That's the way I always pictured him. It was not something conscious. I think it was unconscious. But when I was reading the story again, I heard the Lord speak to me. And he said, he wasn't angry. And it came out, for me, it came out of nowhere. And I stopped and I go, huh? And I hear the Lord say again, David was not angry. And it was in that moment that I realized, yeah, that's the way I always pictured him. Like he got so bothered. Who does this guy think he is? Right? And then I, I stayed. He wasn't angry. And then the Lord said, angry men don't ask questions. Isn't that true? What angry men do is they end up in jail. Right? Because they just slug first and then think later. Right? That's what happened. Suddenly that that thing that came upon David had happened before when he was alone. And he testified, I'm alone. I take care of my father's sheep out in the wilderness. And if you study up on David, you begin to realize that out in the wilderness is where he would play and he would sing. It's in our wilderness. It's in when we feel unhelped. When we feel Weak, when we feel exposed, when we feel vulnerable, is when we're supposed to take this thing and worship. That's why worship has lost its power in the congregation, because now it literally leans on strength. The better the band, the more people get into it, especially young, young people. The better the band, the more they get into it. So they're not learning how to worship. They're learning how to play and how to sing. But they're not learning how to worship. And here's David. And I began to see what I'd never noticed before. God pointed out that he asked a question. Angry men don't ask questions. Then I went back and I realized he asked the question twice. He said, what shall be done? And they answered him twice. They said, well, the king will enrich him. It'll give him great reward. Now see, David's, what happens when we begin to worship God is that things change. Our mind becomes different. So why should we sing? Why should we worship Because when we worship, in the book of Psalms, it tells us that he inhabits the praises of his people. If you need God somewhere, you have to praise. That's what he comes, the word inhabit means come into. Your house is empty until you inhabit it. Right? So when we need God, how do we get God here? He inhabits the praises. But when we're going through a hard time, don't you find it interesting that that's the most difficult time to praise? That's like the worst time for you to lift up your voice. And it's almost like you can't. And yet that is when we're supposed to praise. That's the difference between playing and singing songs and worshiping God. 
So here's David out in that wilderness facing dangers all alone. But he was worshiping God. So now, without him realizing it, his situation changes. He's a shepherd. Now he's a delivery boy. And this delivery boy sees something that just doesn't make sense to him. And now his transformed mind kicks in. And he hears the words of these guys saying, well, they'll give him money. The king is going to give his own daughter for him to marry. And all taxes will be removed from him and his entire family forever. Now see, David's 16-year-old transformed mind, he begins to think, wait, wait, wait. I, I, I need confirmation. What? What? What did you guys say that will happen? Well, uh, he will be enriched, made, you know, made wealthy. The king will give him his own daughter to marry. And his, his family will never have to pay taxes again. David's transformed mind said, Hmm. Well. Not too long ago, the prophet of God came and he said that I was going to be the next king of Israel. If this giant kills me, then God is a liar. Since I know that God is not a liar, this giant can't kill me. So this giant isn't here to threaten me. He's here to bless me. And he starts thinking, when I kill the giant, I'm going to get me some. And I'm going to, yeah, because I've seen the, 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 the king's daughter. And, and he's thinking, his transformed mind. And now, dad. He's going to be so happy because he'll never have to pay tax again. Oh, yeah. I know why I'm here. I'm here for God's blessing. So my question to you is, what giant are you facing that you see as a threat when in reality he's an opportunity for you to be blessed? What giant have you been facing for so many years that you kept considering a threat when in reality he was just an opportunity and he's still there. The opportunity's still there. Right? The opportunity is still there. I want to encourage you today that as you recognize that real worship changes you don't miss opportunity to worship God and to worship him with all your heart the most times that I've worshipped the Lord with all my heart have been the hardest times in my life I, I, I call it singing the Christian blues because there was times when I went through such bad times you know growing up seeing what I saw the hardest thing for me was to accept the change. For years, I saw miracle after miracle. I felt like I was God's favorite, you know. Uh, my first bike that I ever desired when I was a kid, the Lord spoke to my grandmother, unbeknownst to me or anybody. And on my birthday, that bike, the, the exact bike that I wanted, 
was at my house. I walked in, I looked in, Dad, Mom, oh my God, I'm so happy. Dad goes, don't thank us, we we didn't have any money. And I go, so where did this come from? He goes, your grandma brought it. So I ran to Grandma's house. I said, Grandma, how did you know? She said, I, mijito, when I went to Sears to pay my layaway, that's what Grandma said. She goes, I, every time I go to pay my layaway, there's, there was a bike hanging there with all the other bikes. But this time when I went, I saw it, and the Lord said, buy that bicycle for Johnny. So I bought it. That happened to me all the time. Every guitar, even to this day, the guitars that I have, I've never had the money to buy them. Somehow, some way, God would give me what I wanted. Right? So, Finally, one day came. And after seeing so many miracles, Mama gets sick. She had an emergency triple bypass and everything went wrong. They lasted hours in the operating room and and somehow she pulled through. She spent 31 days in ICU. And my dad, he would camp out there. Because he was clergy, they, they'd give him free run. And in the middle of the night, you know, he was constantly praying for mom. Me and my brothers were praying for mom. And no change. So dad sometimes in the middle of the night would get up and, and walk through the ICU unit. And he would hear someone in pain. He goes, I, I'd hear them hurting. And I'd walk in and, and he'd say, hey, uh, could I pray for you? He goes, almost everybody always said, yeah. He'd pray for them, and maybe a day, two days later, that person would be released, completely healthy, going home. But he prayed for mom and nothing. Suddenly, all the miracles that we saw ended. That was so difficult for me. And even though mom survived many years later, 10, 12 years later, she was still alive. I was in Mexico recording an album. And uh, my brother Eddie is a music producer, so he was in the, in the cabin and he said, Hey, and I finished my last song. I was happy. I'm good to go. And suddenly I hear the little click on my headphones. Click. Hey, bro, uh, we need one more song. And I look over and, and I see him through the window and I go, uh, I don't have any more songs. And he looks at me and he click. Yeah, well, we need another one. Click. Like, I, I don't have any more. That, that's it. That's all. And he goes, click. Well, we need another one. So you need to write one. And I'm like looking at him. Oh, yeah, so I can just write one. Right? And he goes, I don't know, bro, but we need another song, so you better get on it. Click. I'm like, I hate you, man. Right? So I walked out of there. I picked up my guitar. And I said, God, we, we both know who really writes these tunes. So could you hook me up, man? Because I need one more. So I'm sitting there and, and I start playing. I thought, sounds kind of cool. Simple. Then I started to sing. 
Whatever came out of my mouth, right? And this is what came out. There's a million questions in my heart tonight. Couldn't hide them if I tried. Mama's laying sick in bed again tonight. Faithful woman all her life. Daddy used to lay hands on the sick and they'd be healed. I watched him do it all so many times. He's prayed for years for mama, and now I want to know. God, don't you love us anymore? And right when I said those words, I realized that even though it had been so many years that that had happened, I was offended. I was hurt with God. And it really struck me. It like woke within me like, I thought I was over that, Lord. But I guess I'm not. God, don't you love us anymore? See, that was the voice of my little boy. The one I was when I saw God do all these amazing things. They say a little rain must fall into everybody's life. But I swear it feels just like a flood tonight. I'm like a man drowning in unbelief, watching Noah's ark float by. But through doubt's thunder, hear me cry. Through doubts, thunder, hear me cry. I still believe. I still believe in you, Jesus. And I don't know why bad things happen to good people. I don't know why Sometimes we've got to cry But I still believe in you They say a little rain must fall Into everybody's life But I swear it feels just like a flood tonight Like a man drowning in unbelief Watching Noah's ark float by But through doubt's thunder, hear me cry Through doubt's thunder, hear me cry I still believe So I don't know what thunder is in your life I don't know what your thunder sounds like. What it is that holds you back. But the reason you're here in this church is because you still believe. 
There's something inside of us. I believe it's the spirit of God that does not allow us to completely disconnect, to completely give up. Sometimes it looks like there's no way this situation is ever going to change. I'm going to live, I'm going to die, and it's going to be the same. And yet, here you are. Here we are. So what I want to do today is give you an opportunity to remember what God has promised. Like David did. You may be facing this threat, this doubt, this giant. But let that mind, as we worship the Lord together, let it transform. Let it change. Let it become the mind that God wanted you to have all along. Allow the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do. And as you worship the Lord, I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. I worship you, O Prince of Peace. That is what I long to do. I give you praise, for you are my righteousness. I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. Lift up your voice, say, I worship you, Almighty God. There is none. There is none like you. I worship you, O Prince of Peace. I worship you, O Prince of Peace. That is what I long to do. That is what I long to do. I give you praise. I give you praise. For you are my righteousness. I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. Come on, sing it with all your heart. I worship you. See, and this is the time when we should sing. Almighty God, there is none like you. Especially if you are going through something right now. I worship you, O Prince of Peace. That is what I long, that is what I long to do. Oh, I give you praise, for you are my righteousness. I worship you, 
please understand, when you and I worship God, when you and I sing, God comes. So right now, you have to understand, whether you feel something or not, God is here. Right now. And Jeremiah 29, 11 tells us, for I know the thoughts, the plans I have for you. They're not to harm you. They're to bless you, to give you hope, to give you future, to give you an expected end. It's up to you and I whether we choose to believe that. Do you believe that God is here to give you hope? To give you a future? Or have you already decided that your future is gone? That you're literally living out your last days and there is no future? Have you decided that what you wanted when you were that teenage girl, it's gone? You know, that was a pipe dream. Or are you willing to say, Lord, I believe you. I believe you. I give you praise. For you are my righteousness. I worship you, Almighty God. There is none like you. So don't disqualify yourself, my friends. In August, I'll be going back to Seattle for another surgery. I'm still scared. I don't know if you if you follow me on Facebook, you'll see when I got to the hospital, the first thing that I did, didn't have a guitar, and I was kind of breathless. I sang. I recorded it. And I thought, I'm going to record this just in case. So I don't know if I'm coming home. So I recorded me, myself singing because I wanted God to, to be sure that if this was my last breath, I was going to use it on him. Yeah. I'm here today because I love the Lord with all my heart. I want to see his glory. I want to see it here in front of the people that need him. I want to see it here in front of my children, in front of my grandbabies. I want to see the glory of God. It's not my pipe dream. It's God's vision planted in me. So in Jesus name, will you pray with me right now? I want to ask you if you if you need a touch from the Lord. In the past, we've listened to preachers and we've uh, waited for them to invite to pray for us or healing for miracles, for signs, for wonders. We've waited, but that was the past. God spoke to me many years ago. And he says, I don't need your hands to touch my children. Now, I was raised to lay hands on the sick. 
It was a natural way of doing things. And I remember as I was about to do it, the Holy Spirit said, I don't need your hands. I want to touch them. So I pulled my hands away. And I began to worship. And suddenly, people would start falling out. Suddenly, someone would scream and say they were healed. A woman with stage four cancer at a park suddenly screamed and started yelling, there's no pain. The pain is gone. Many weeks later, the pastor that was holding the event called, told us. The woman came and brought her report. She was cancer-free. She had been sent home because there was nothing more to do. She was in her house, which was across the other side from the park, when she heard the music and decided to come out. So while we're worshiping God, back then we had long hair. We looked like Satan's gift to the church. But we worshiped God, and as we worshiped God, God healed her. She was not even a believer. She became one. In, in, in Pasco, Washington, we were worshiping the Lord. The weekend of my, my aunt's death in a car accident I was in. She died. She was eight months pregnant. Her and the baby died. It hurt me so badly. I was injured, and I still went and fulfilled the commitment that we had made months before to go to this youth event and play. And while we were worshiping, just like what we're doing, just just plain worship, it wasn't the rock and roll, it wasn't the presentation, it was just worship. And as we began to worship... Suddenly, a young woman, I heard a young woman's voice scream so loud, that high-piercing girl scream. Ah! And everybody kind of, it disrupted everything. And I saw a woman just bolt out through the doors at the Red Lion Inn in Pasco, Washington. And I saw a couple of gentlemen run out following her. We continued to worship when suddenly they came back in the door. They brought her all the way to the front. One of the gentlemen motioned to me. They brought him a microphone, and we quieted the music, kept playing in the background, right? And as as we're playing, they hold the microphone, and he says to her, tell them, tell them what you just told us, tell them. She's weeping, she's sobbing. It's almost hard to understand her words. And she said, some of you know who I am. Some of you know me. And you know that I was born blind in my right eye. Then she covered her left eye. She goes, and God healed me. And she covers her left eye and begins to point at people. You, you're in the back. You have that shirt. And she started describing people with her right eye. She goes, I can see. I can see. And she starts screaming. I didn't lay hands. We didn't ask for the sick to come up. We just worshiped. See, God is a healer. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. And if God is in the room, he's going to be himself. Right? So how do we get him into the room? For thou, O Lord, art high 
above all the earth, thou art exalted, far above all gods, for thou, O Lord, art high. Above all the earth, thou art exalted, far above all God, and I God? Will you believe today that when you worship, he appears? He comes into the room? And if you believe that he comes into the room, what are you going to do with that? Nothing? Guys, it's Santa Claus. Sit on the lap, ask for the present. That's how it works. I believe the Lord is here right now. If there's anyone who wants to come to this altar and talk to the Lord, talk to him like he's actually here because he is. Right? If there are questions that you need to ask him, even if your, your best praise is complaint, he turns our mourning into dancing. The deal is that we have to give him the mourning. Some of us want to say all the right words. God, you are faithful. God, you are wonderful. When in reality, in your heart, you're saying, my life sucks. I hate what I'm going through right now. I hate what's happening. But you won't say that. Because your religious mindset tells you, no, uh, you have to say all the positive things. No, sing the blues, baby. Sing the blues. Because he'll take all of that as you deposit that offering and say, this is... the." The ugliest thing that I could say about you. But it's all I have. And before you know it, it transforms. And you begin to worship the Lord. I worship you, almighty God. There is none like you. And that's when it becomes true worship. Right? I love you guys. Thank you so much for... Allowing me to be here, as you can hear, uh, last night was not a good night for me. I was awake since 3.30 in the morning. So I, I'm, 
My voice is tired. I'm tired. But I plan on coming back. Okay? I plan on coming back. And, and, uh, and, and next time I'm going to rock and roll. All right? So I'll, I'll give Pastor enough time for you guys to invite your youngins, you know, as many youngins as you can. And just, just tell them that this guy's a freak. Right? And they'll come just to make sure that I am a freak. Right? You watch what God can do. Start worshiping. Start worshiping, ladies, when you're doing the dishes or you're vacuuming. Worship. Oh, brother, I can't sing. Hey, even bullfrogs sing. They sound terrible, but they still sing. So just sing, okay? Sing to the Lord a new song. Lift up your voice with a voice of triumph. Do this, and you watch what God can do. God bless you, everyone. Pastor, thank you so much. I don't, I don't think I could add anything to that. Just take that by faith and let's live that way. Amen. So, Father, we just thank you. Thank you for your servant uh, in Johnny and thank you for his uh, lovely wife and son. And just thank you for the, the mystery. Father, I pray that, that you would remind us of the testimonies we have. Speak them to the things around us, Lord God, and stand on your truth and your promise as we worship our way through this life. I pray your hand upon each one as they go. May your word just come alive in us uh, as we go through this, these coming weeks, especially, and bless our fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.